Hello and welcome to the Local Myth Story and Podcast with me, Eli Lewis Lysett. This time we're over to Derbyshire and the village of Money Ash, where Arbelow is regarded as one of the most important prehistoric sites in all of England and a bastion of our ancient cultural identity. It's most definitely a place of wonder, but its vision comes complete with the seemingly unanswerable conundrum as to how its once magnificent stone circle came to be pulled down and laid flat. Could the mystery, however, become a little clearer if we place it against the location's direct and intimate connection with the religious wars of Dark Age Britain? Arbelow represents a prehistoric ritual centre of national significance, demonstrating the changes and adaptations of a local community over a period lasting more than a thousand years between 2500 and 1500 BCE. The comparisons to our most famous sites such as Stonehenge and Avebury are sometimes born from little more than convenience, but in many ways those comparisons are far more appropriate than is often appreciated. As focal points in the landscape, all of those locations hold the secrets of our ancient past. Those who visit the site of Arbelow in Moniash will find themselves treated to a smorgasbord of prehistoric delights, the like of which is unrivaled in the north of England. Set in the central uplands of Derbyshire's limestone plateau, the site contains a huge earthen henge, a stone circle, and all manner of trackways and funerary structures that will leave even the most seasoned veteran of such topics with much to admire. What's more, it appears that each feature at the site seems to have an element of rarity about it too. The huge earthen henge has clearly defined access points, which once provided entry and exit for those partaking in the rituals within. Whilst inside the stone circle itself are the remains of a cove, a central stone chamber in which it is thought that the most exclusive ceremonial rites took place. Perhaps the most curious aspect of Arbelow, though, rests in the positioning of its stone circle, whereby more than 40 limestone slabs now lay on their backs, facing the sky, to give the observer the appearance of a giant magical clock. Now, Britain is filled with thousands of prehistoric sites, by which we mean the time before the Roman conquest. Stone circles, hill forts, burial mounds, And they're all signifiers back to an inherent British culture, although that isn't how the people that built them would have seen it, that's still perhaps underappreciated in Britain itself. And in this topic in general, things can get quite confounding because, frankly, there are no definitive answers. For every expert that feels that a stone circle was a religious centre, which I've alluded to so far on this podcast, you'll find another who think stone circles were more of more prosaic meeting places. Important, yes, but not quite so celestial. Maybe they were used for markets or for people to gather at important times of the year. We don't know who controlled them. There's a huge range throughout England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. So there's a clear commonality of a belief structure or a practicality that those tribal peoples had in common. Today, of course, they fill us with wonder. And you may have visited stone circles yourself, or henges, henges being 
generally a circular enclosure of a dike of earth, signifying a difference between the outside and the inside, offering protection against the elements. Or perhaps, again, for those ceremonial rites, we don't know. And in general, those earthen hinges were later added to. They would have often stone circles built inside them, which notes a kind of shift in belief structure. But this episode isn't about that as such. It's not about delving and uncovering the ancient belief structures and ceremonial sites of Britain. There are plenty of podcasts out there and hundreds, I dare say thousands of books on the subject. This podcast episode is specifically about that mystery as to why Arbelow's stone circle has been laid flat at some point in the past. Now, going back through history, it's actually quite a stretch. It's a long way to get to a point in time where there was sufficient motivation in the political and religious landscape of the country to even consider doing such a thing as pulling down a stone circle. Because the last time England was in real upheaval from a religious point of view would have really been during the Civil War. And the Puritans, those that are responsible for many of our whitewashed churches today, were very keen on doing away with any iconoclasm, any elements of popery as they saw it. Idols, gold, all that stuff we primarily associate with the Catholic Church. They weren't really interested in the ancient beliefs of a location, of a people, as generally... There are issues with witchcraft, the witch craze taking place around a similar time as the Puritan movement emerges, aren't really associated in contemporary terms at the time with our ancient sites. Back into the medieval period as well, the later medieval period, sites like Stonehenge and Avebury weren't really a concern for the church. If anything, they were looked on with a fun fascination, giving an idea of Britain that never really existed, but something they wanted to tether to, particularly through the Arthurian writers like Geoffrey of Monmouth. So before the 1600s and the time of the Puritans I mentioned, we must go back quite a way to a point at which an ideological junction in history appears with the power to cause the action apparent at our below. And to find that moment when the tide of religion may well have had cause to sweep the old stones down in its wake. We must go right back to the hinterland of post-Roman Britain and the Dark Ages. The Kingdom of Mercia, of which Arbelo and the surrounding region was part of, emerged from the soup of post-Roman Britain as one of several regional kingdoms created by a juxtaposition of incoming Angles, Jutes and Saxons arriving from mainland Europe. At its height, it contained a huge swathe of territory, stretching from modern-day Lincolnshire in the east to Cheshire in the west, and covered the whole of the Midlands. Its early history is inherently pagan, old gods of old religions finding new life in the vacuum that was created following the withdrawal of Christianised Romans in the late 4th century. The last truly pagan king of Mercia had been Penda, who reigned between 626 and 655 CE during a time in which Christianity was undergoing a resurgence in the wider Anglo-Saxon world. It's the comeback that has stayed with us to today. And this was largely sponsored by the work of Celtic Christian monks in the surrounding kingdoms, in Northumbria, down in Wessex, 
But the fact that Christianity provided serious advantages courtesy of an alliance with the Holy Roman Empire in Europe shouldn't be ignored as a real sweetener for getting on board with this re-emerging religion. Because at the time, and forgive me if you're aware of this, but some people might not be, there wasn't an England or a Britain. It was these kingdoms, each with their own king. And if you've seen the Netflix show, The Last Kingdom, that really demonstrates these feuds and battles and the political shenanigans between these kingdoms that would eventually unite hundreds of years later and come to be thought of as England. And it's interesting that when we say England, as opposed to England, it's mainly perhaps at football grounds that people chant England. That's probably a lot closer to the way it would have been thought of and said with that Norse influence heavily in there, because we'd also got the Vikings coming in at this time. Now, Penda, King Pender of Mercia himself, is understood to have been initially tolerant to Christian preaching within Mercia, which would have much in line with the idea that this was a cosmopolitan kingdom, cultural melting pot. But evidently, his view on the matter changed dramatically, and he's believed to have taken a position in the 650s that a network of Christian was acting to undermine his authority in his own kingdom, something specifically enabled by fractious elements within neighbouring Northumbria and the people of a specific territory known as Bernicia. War duly followed, and in 655, Penda's forces were defeated, and he was beheaded, and paganism in England as Penda and Mercia had been the last ones holding on to the old ways, was effectively dead. Come just three years later, and Mercia had converted to Christianity. As part of Mercia's official conversion under the new king, Penda's son, King Wolf here, there was naturally much making up to do for the damage caused by the religious wars that had characterised the end of his father's reign. The venerable Bede, the Northumbrian monk and chronicler, from whom much of our understanding of the period derives, recorded how Wolfher went on to enthusiastically embrace this Christian conversion, striking up a keen friendship with Wilfred, Bishop of York. And we shouldn't underestimate the size of the charm offensive required for Wolfher to assert himself as a genuine Christian champion against the light of Mercia's long-held pagan heritage. During this period of mercy and conversion, wider cementation of Christian life was already firmly underway throughout Britain, some elements of which had far more to do with force than choice. Barely 60 years before Wolf here became the first Christian king of Mercia, Pope St. Gregory had sent personal orders to the Anglo-Saxon kings of Britain to suppress the worship of idols. In the context of the period, this can only really hold relevance to sites of pagan practice. According to Bede, this edict was carried out first by King Erkenbert of Kent, who ordered that all such pagan idols in his kingdom be forsaken and destroyed. It was a practice of brutal historical revisionism, and many others duly followed. And in some respects, this way of thinking has perhaps most recently been exemplified by the manner in which fighters of the Islamic State were ordered to attack and destroy ancient sites across Syria and Iraq, in hope of eradicating any totems of cultural belief that had existed before the Age of Islam. 
And it's against this backdrop that we can place the mercy and transition to Christianity and the willingness to ensure that, put simply, there would be no going back. Well, how does this influence events at R below? Well, we know that Wolf here had a whole lot of campaigning to do on the subject of religion in order to bolster his dynastic credentials. And we also know that the area of Arbolo will be familiar to the Mercian hierarchy, courtesy of its proximity to the northern borders of the kingdom. Indeed, the nearby town of Bakewell was founded during the period. But what perhaps has not been previously appreciated is the extraordinary level of connection between Arbolo itself and the Mercian elite. Excavation of a burial mound at Benty Grange Farm, a site less than a mile from Arbolo, back in 1848, revealed something incredible. In a project managed by the famed antiquarian Thomas Bateman, his work uncovered a high-status Anglo-Saxon burial, from which the first ever Anglo-Saxon ceremonial military helmet in Britain was found. This helmet was constructed from iron framework, over which plates of horn were laid, leading to an iron bore located at the apex. This ornament, of an animal synonymous with pagan warrior culture, was then duly offset with the addition of a Christian cross on the nasal bar. The discovery of the Benty Grange helmet predates the much more famous Sutton Hoo helmet by 90 years, and provides clear evidence that the landscape of Arbolow had retained cultural importance long after its prehistoric heyday. Such a helmet could only have belonged to a high-status individual. And courtesy of the cross on the nasal bar, that this individual was laid to rest following the Christian conversion of Mercia, is clear. That the pagan beacon of Arbolow lay just a 20-minute stroll away, any association with which the emerging Christian authority of Mercia was deliberately and systematically now choosing to rally against, is just too much of a coincidence. It's difficult to imagine that in the throes of such an ideological change, that the site of Arbolow, with its stone circle, which is huge, by the way, like I say, we're talking about 40 limestone slabs, some perhaps weighing a ton, that this place would have been allowed to just continue in direct eyeline of a location where a local tribal chief or maybe even royalty was to be buried, just wouldn't stand. And it's the only real time in local history when there would be that motivation and deliberately destroy the site effectively, hulking those stones out of the earth and laying them flat as a statement to say, the old gods are gone. This is the land of a Christian kingdom. We're dealing with a difficult and often contradictory period of history that has become typified by the term dark ages in light of the relative lack of contemporary written accounts of the era. And there is no way, and nor will there ever be, of knowing the exact details of what went on during the period at a local level. That said, the downing of the stones at Arbolow was a deliberate act and marries perfectly well with the period in which Mercia was in the sway of that religious reinvention. And pulling down those stones wouldn't only serve to symbolise the end of pagan association in the region, but will go a long way to ensuring local understanding of the change had a clear, literal and physical element. But that the stones were then not destroyed themselves, but left at the site, is also in keeping with the theory, and could even perhaps be seen as the single biggest signal that this was indeed the time in which they were toppled. 
There may have been little question outwardly that the change to Christianity and Mercia needed to be demonstrated in hard, blunt, cold action, but internally, in the minds of those tasked with the act itself, this is the one point in British history at which the individual would have a genuine personal concern that irrespective of political bargain, there may be a chance that they're getting it all wrong, that they were backing the wrong horse, in which case the old gods would be a whole lot easier to appease if the stones could then easily be resurrected should the need arise. Their ancient power, or at least the local perception of it, very much still intact. You can read my full investigative piece into R Below and the Toppling of the Stones in my book, Mythistoric Origins, which is available via Amazon and also on the web store on my website, thelocalmythstorian.com. If you enjoy the project, please do consider signing up to the newsletter. You'll also get access to the members library on the website, where there's a whole host of material regarding the extraordinary local histories of Cheshire, Derbyshire and Staffordshire. You can find me on Twitter too, at TL Mythstorian. It's been a pleasure. Until next time.